0: Thanks for joining us for another God-inspired message from C3 Church Monash. Connect with us online at c3monash.org.au and we hope you enjoy today's message. What I was reminded of is that twice, only twice in the Gospels do we see God hurrying or moving quickly, so to speak. When Jesus calls to Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry down from the tree. Jesus is normally just on his time. He's normally just following the Father's direction. And it's, he moves calmly and softly and smoothly through his life. It's the one time he speaks in a manner of speed. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry down. The other time we see it is with the prodigal son. We see the prodigal son coming home and his father rushing out to meet him. It's the two times that we see God moving quickly. One, Jesus calling us into him, hurry down, come back to me quickly. And when we see the Father moving quickly towards us as we come towards him. And church, I just, I really feel like God is this morning, he's just saying, hurry down. Whether you don't even know me yet or whether you've known me for years, he's saying, hurry down out of the tree. Move back towards me. And then watch as I run towards you. Father, we give you thanks, praise, and glory. That it's not all on us. And that God, as we choose to draw near to you, Father God, you run to meet us. The moment you see us move, God, you begin to move. You run to meet us. And God, we ask and pray that you would do that today, that you would call each of us to move into you. And that, Father, we would so clearly, each one of us, know that you are moving and running towards us, Father God. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wow, yeah, let's round of applause wonderful very wonderful well welcome to church you may be seated grab your seat and worship Ben. thank you so much team always wonderful job well yes welcome to church if you're new here or somewhat new and we haven't met yet my name is ben please don't be a stranger come and say hello after the service i'd love to meet you it's always nice meeting new people, inviting them into the church. Well, I've had a bit of an interesting week. Um, I was supposed to be in sunny Coolangatta with some of the team from here for the national conference. So C3 churches from around Australia gather up near the Gold Coast. It's a terrible week serving God on the Gold Coast in the sun. But uh, I wasn't able to make it. I ended up with an infection in my arm, my elbow. I saw my arm swell up and all red and all sorts of things. And I ended up in hospital overnight earlier in the week. So very disappointed I wasn't able to make it. But more disappointed so around the fact that I nearly had to tell my children they weren't going to go to kids' church today. See, I had to sit at home, sit or stand at home for most of the week with my arm like this. And my kids are like, yes, Dad, you may ask your question now. (laughs) And so I'm like, right, you lot are not going to kids' church. Because we're talking about repentance in big church. You need to learn about it. And you lot need to repent for having mocked your father all week (laughs) while he was ill and injured or whatever we want to call it. They weren't that bad. And truth be told, had it been one of them, might have been doing exactly the same thing. Families are great. But we are into our season, seasonals, theme of generation to generation and in september this month we're looking at repentance turning our hearts back to god the key scripture for the month is out of joel chapter 2 verse 12 even now declares the lord return to me with all your heart with fasting with weeping with mourning now i've been in church my whole life but the more i thought about it the more i realized repentance is not really a topic we broach often or talk much about And probably a whole bunch of reasons for that. And for one thing, I would say it doesn't really lend itself to being a naturally feel-good or inspiring kind of message. And perhaps sometimes we think maybe it's a little bit redundant. Do we really need to speak about repentance? When in the church, perhaps we're all aware of it and we're all doing it. We have a lifestyle of repentance. But I was also thinking that it is something that actually just makes us a little uncomfortable. You know, repentance is a challenge to well-worn paths in our lives, paths that are leading us away from God. It's a challenge to all the areas of our thinking and our being that don't fit with God's purpose for us. And quite frankly, the idea or the conversation around repentance shines a bit of a spotlight on the sin and the disobedience in our personal and in our communal worlds. But repenting and turning our hearts back to God is vital in the life of a believer. And it's clearly a key theme throughout Scripture. The first words out of Jesus' mouth at the start of his public ministry, Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, Jesus could have said anything to kick off his entry into the public sphere, but he chose to say, Repent. So while it might be a little bit confronting, even scary, we are reminded to be continually examining our ways to identify those paths that we need to be turning away from. And it's not a one-time deal. This is not about salvation. Now, of course, if it is the first time that you're turning back to God, if it's the first time that you would accept the grace and the forgiveness on offering Jesus, then yes, it is about salvation. But for the life of a believer, repentance is part of the lifestyle. Can we, like David, in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, be courageous enough to often come before God and say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray over the word and then we'll try and unpack a little bit. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. God, we give you thanks that it is life-giving. But we also give you thanks that it's challenging, God, that it keeps us on our toes. And we thank you that we have the opportunity, Father, to wrestle with it to chew over it, and to open our hearts to you, that you might speak to us through it, Lord God. And we ask and pray you would do that today, God. Be with us today. Speak today, Lord God. In your name, amen. Now, I probably hear preachers, or people on from the pulpit say it somewhat regularly, that when you're preaching a message, you're probably the person who gets the most out of it, That'd be more than anybody else listening, because you've spent the time sort of ruminating over it, delving into it, time with it. And that's definitely true for this week. Um, I struggled a bit putting this one together. I really kind of felt like it was God just pressing into my own world um, with a few thoughts that were really quite ordered in how they came. Um, So I hope there's something there for someone else. But if not, I've got a lot out of it. (laughs) The first of those thoughts is simply, it's really not that big a deal. Now, Joel is a prophetic book. It is a divine message for God's people. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, I don't know the exact process for how God communicated the message to Joel, whether it was really descriptive and really detailed about what he wanted said and how he wanted it said, or whether he just kind of gave Joel a general picture and a sense of this is what you need to communicate. But either way, Joel as the prophet is handed responsibility for making sure that God's people Hear the message loud and clear. Now, if you haven't read Joel, I would encourage you, just go back in. It's not a long book, but there's a lot in it. And so Joel, using poetic form for a large portion of the book, he goes about developing this really graphic imagery around sinfulness and the consequences of sin. So he creates a visual relationship between a plague of locusts and the destruction that they cause, and the coming of what is referred to as the day of the Lord. Now, one study that I read on Joel described its greatest literary feature as the way in which Joel's imagination amplifies literal locusts into images of apocalyptic horror, pictures of God's judgment against human sinfulness. It's nice and breezy, isn't it? Statements like verse 6 and 7 in chapter 1, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, Its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. In verse 10, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. He uses graphic and alarming language associated with a very well understood cause of devastation for an agricultural people, locusts. But he's doing so to impress upon them the gravity of God's message. Perhaps a more relevant and impactful analogy for us here today might be something like the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. An utterly devastating event. It destroyed everything in its path. People, animals, homes, infrastructure. But Joel is having to convey, it's his responsibility to convey the divine message that the day of the Lord is coming that it's coming because the people have turned away from God and it's a big deal. It's not going to be pretty. Now, I don't think that there's any one of us here today who is eagerly awaiting or championing a reemergence of a fire and brimstone style message in the church. But I was struck by the gravity of God's memo as delivered by Joel, by the imagery he employed. And as I pondered over that, I began to wonder, having spent the time mulling over the passage and praying about it, I began to wonder if our culture, certainly secular culture, but also church culture, hasn't seen us become far too offendable, defensive, or put off by an exposure of our sinfulness and the associated destruction that it causes. What I was hearing God say as I read through the book was... The question of, in this age of outrage and offence, and where relative truth, so whatever I believe is fine and whatever you believe is fine, it's all true. In the age of outrage and offence, and where relative truth is the norm, has sin been reclassified? It's really not that big a deal. And under the banner of grace is the list, for want of a better word, is the list of things from which we as followers of Christ should be turning away from, are growing shorter and shorter. See, God's challenge to me was Ben, are you like David, prepared to say, Search me, O God, and know my heart? Try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm hearing God say in my own world, how loud are the voices of justification and rationalization in your life, Ben? Do you set the standard for your life? Is there anywhere that you are reclassifying sin based on your feelings or your cultural context? And where you say, it's really not that big a deal. Because the extent of the imagery that we find in the book of Joel, which although it's not written specifically to us here in 2019, it still serves as a very blunt reminder of just how seriously God views sin. Of how big a deal it is for him. And it should cause every one of us to stop and invite his examination of our lives. Author Richard Foster refers to the prayer of examine in this way. In the examine of conscience, we are inviting the Lord to search our hearts to the depths. Far from being dreadful, this is a scrutiny of love. We boldly speak the words of the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Without apology and without defense, we ask to see what is truly in us. It's for our own sake that we ask these things. It's for our own good, for our healing, for our happiness. I want you to know that God goes with us in the examine of conscience. It is a joint search, if I may put it that way. This fact is helpful for us to know for two equally important but opposite reasons. To begin with, if we are the lone examiners of our heart, a thousand justifications will arise to declare our innocence. We will call evil good and good evil, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20. But since God is with us in the search, we are listening more than we are defending. Our petty rationalizations and evasions of responsibility simply will not tolerate the light of his presence. He will show us what we need to see when we need to see it. At the other end of the spectrum is our tendency for self-deprecation. If left to our own devices, it is so easy for us to take one good look at who we truly are and declare ourselves unredeemable. Our damaged self-image votes against us and we begin beating ourselves mercilessly. But with God alongside us, we are protected and comforted. So the next time that we're tempted to say it's really not that big a deal, the next time you're driving down the freeway towards Sydney, 5 to 10 kilometers over the speed limit, because everybody does it, it's really not that big a deal. The next time you're tempted to stretch the truth because it might benefit you a bit, just, just a little bit, it's really not that big a deal. The next time we tell or we join in on a perhaps crude or unwholesome joke, it's really not that big a deal. Can we be brave enough to invite God into that conversation, regardless of how trivial it might appear? Are we willing to let him decide what is and what isn't a big deal? Take a breath. So as I said, as I was processing this, and I really felt as if this was God pushing into my own world, and the way that God was just sort of letting the thoughts come into me, I'm so glad that he gave the next one. Because what I felt being unfolded to me then, next, on this brief journey in Joel, and it might seem blindingly obvious, but it was just this sense of we need to revisit the nature and the character of God. And it was those words, yet even now, declares the Lord. Even now. See, the graphic imagery around the day of the Lord is surpassed only by the enormity of God's grace and his goodness. Chapter 2, Joel 2, 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It's a truth that the nature of God, his very essence, who he is, which at best we make only very poor attempts to grasp and articulate, but it's his essence, his very being, that actually requires a response to sin. It's like an automated outcome. See, the scenes in Joel 1 and 2, they're not prescriptive of what God wants to do. It's not an expression of what he desires. Rather, it's descriptive of what is the natural outcome to the existence of sin in his world. And there's a difference. God's nature, who he is, demands it's almost an involuntary response to sin. It's why Jesus came and why the cross exists. But his desire expressed in his character is that none should perish also why jesus came and why the cross exists as i was thinking through that i had a probably seems like a very silly thought but you just run with it if it's god right i was taken back to watching a movie a few years ago has anybody seen national treasure nicholas cage yeah just a little bit of a fun kind of family movie treasure hunters and uh, Nicolas Cage's character, Ben, he's a treasure hunter and he spends the movies trying to solve all these riddles and work all these different things out so that he can beat the bad guys to find this phenomenal treasure that's been lost for thousands of years. And in doing so, he has to break a whole bunch of laws and steal some things because it's a good cause and he does that so the bad guys can't do it. Anyway, they get to the end of the movie. And uh, Nicolas Cage is sitting there, his character's called Ben, and he's sitting there with the FBI agent, who's kind of tracked with him throughout the movie, and, and you can tell he's almost grown, grown sympathetic towards his cause throughout the course of the movie. And they've discovered the treasure, and the FBI agent's saying, so what are we going to do, and Nicolas Cage says, well, I want to make sure that the find is attributed not just to me, but to my friends here. We just wanted to go to a museum. We don't want to really keep it or anything like that. And then he says, and I'd really like not to go to prison. And the FBI agent, played by Harvey Keitel, he just says, somebody's got to go to prison, Ben. And I remember thinking at that time, like, yeah, wow, there's no choice, It's not a decision that's being made, it's not up for, for conversation. This occurred, this is the outcome. The FBI agent saying, it almost kind of doesn't really matter, just the outcome is someone's going to prison. And so it is with God. He can't choose not to respond. His own nature cannot let sin be undealt with. And so we end up with divinely inspired imagery, such as we find in Joel. But because of his character, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, they're all traits that Joel has drawn straight from God's own description of himself in Exodus 34.6. Because of his character, God says... Even now. Even now, return to me. There's another way. Fast, weep, mourn, repent. And we see this play out in Psalm 51. It's King David's well-known song or prayer. Uh, after he was confronted about his own sin, and this wasn't small sin, so to speak. I don't think David could have said, ah, oh, it's not really that big a deal. This is lust, adultery, adultery. Deceit, murder. But David approaches God and he appeals to the gracious character of God as the grounds for why he should be forgiven. He boldly reminds God of who it is he himself said he is in Exodus 34, six, And then he acknowledges that all God requires of him is that he turn back, that he repents with a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51, 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And in sixteen, seventeen, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. And so the call from God has been understand the gravity of what we're dealing with here. Sin of any sort is no laughing matter. It separates you from me. And my nature demands a response to it. Examine your lives. Invite me to look inward with you and identify any way or path that is not of me. Then repent. Turn your heart back to me because I am gracious and merciful. There is another way. And you need not be afraid or ashamed. The next thought was destroy the house, burn the ships. What does it actually mean to repent? Is it simply the idea of turning around and that if we happen to be on a path that is leading us away from God, that we acknowledge our sin and with a sorry heart that we turn back to him? Yes, it is that, but it is also more. According to the history books and perhaps a little bit of legend, in the year 1519, the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes landed on the coast of Mexico. With roughly 600 or so other Spaniards, their guns, and a handful of horses, his intent was to conquer the mighty Aztec Empire. Now, At the time, the Aztecs were the uncontested power of their region, the capital city with approximately 250,000 inhabitants, and a population of between five or six million in total. The driving force behind this mission into the new world was the belief that treasures and riches similar to those of King Solomon were to be found in the land of the Aztecs. And so with what really amounted to a pretty small invasion force, Cortes set his mind to conquest. But one of the things that Hernan Cortes is known for, or what gets attributed to him, is his role in the idioms or the development of the idioms, don't burn your bridges or burn the ships. You see, when Cortez's expedition landed on the shores of Mexico, one of his first orders to his men was burn the ships. Now to his small invading force, the message was clear. Going back isn't an option. The only way that we get out of this alive is if we succeed in what we came here to do. So burn the ships. Now whether it was the key factor or not but two years later that small force had conquered that empire retreat wasn't an option and i love history for history's sake but what does this have to do with repentance well the hebrew word for repentance which is the same word as to return is the word shuv we would see it as s-h-o-o-v and I've talked a little bit about this in times past, but Hebrew is a pictographic language, which means every letter of their alphabet is actually a picture. And that picture conveys its own meaning. And the word shuv in Hebrew, so repent or to return, contains two letters. One is the letter shin and the other is the letter bet. Now the letter shin is the picture of a tooth or teeth. And it symbolises to devour, to consume, To destroy. The letter bet is the picture of a tent or a house. And it actually symbolizes a physical house or building, a body that houses someone or something or the household. And when we combine those two letters to create the word repent, these images give that word an added meaning. In Hebrew, repentance comes when we destroy the house. It literally means leave nothing to go back to. So yes, it's a turn around and turn back to God, but it requires that we destroy whatever it is that we're turning away from. Like Hernan Cortez and his men, we don't give ourselves the option of going back. We don't leave open the possibility of going back to a way that is not from God. Joel 2.12, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. God is jealous over you and I. He's merciful and he's slow to anger. He has given us every opportunity to turn back to him. But he wants our whole heart. He wants us to burn the ships, he wants us to destroy the house. As Andrew was saying before, you don't have to live with it. Don't leave the option of going back to that. Whatever it might be in your life, don't leave that option open burn the ships, destroy the house. But we get to do this knowing that on the other side of repentance is God's character in full effect. His grace, his mercy, his compassion and his steadfast love. His nature demands a response to sin and his character sent Jesus to deal with that outcome. So that we don't have to. But he wants us to continue turning back to him. He wants us to not think, it's just not that big a deal. It is a big deal. But I've taken care of it for you. Burn the ships. Turn back to me. Christy and James are going to come on up for the next few moments. They're actually going to sing a song for us by a group called For King and Country. The song is called Burn the Ships. Lights are going to come down a little bit. I actually encourage you just to sit there with your eyes closed for a moment and really sort of clue into the lyrics. Listen to what's being said. Just let them float over you. Let them wash over you. If you're feeling like this is actually a moment or a point in time where, you know what, I need to invite God to examine my life. I need to turn back to God. I need there are ships in my world that need to be burnt. Then do so. But just let's just listen.
1: Light a match, leave the past, burn the ships, and don't you Sempre i oh.
0: a match, leave the past, burn the ships, and step into a new day. The magnitude of the imagery in Joel, the devastation of sin, is surpassed only by the goodness and the grace of God. There's an unavoidable consequence to sin. God's nature demands it. But such is his love that he took care of that for us as well. It's why Jesus came. It's why the cross exists. And so God says to us, there's another way. Just turn back. Whether it's the first time, or the 50th time, thousandth time, turn back. Every one of us, no matter how long you may have known Jesus, every one of us has things in our lives that keep pulling at us, that are hard to let go of, that keep dragging us away from what God has for us, the best for us. He says, turn back, burn the ships, destroy whatever it is that's back there. might, if we can, just get the rest of the worship group up, team up. We'll get everybody on their feet. But we want an opportunity here. If if you feel like God is speaking into your world about repentance, if you feel God is tugging on your heart and saying, turn back to me, if you know that there are ships in your world that need to be destroyed, we want to open up the altar for you to come forward and do that. Stand, kneel, cry, weep, mourn laugh, shout, whatever it might be. But if you have that sense within you that God is wanting something to happen in your world, don't wait, hurry down. Jesus says, hurry down out of the tree. And as you make your way towards him, you will see and you will feel God rush his way towards you. We'd love you to come forward if you'd like to be on the altar. And we can pray with you and for you.